we could just sing that over and over and over again and, and really just uh, not have any need for me to get up here and stand, but I'm going to do it anyways because I do have a few things that I think the Lord has, a, I think He wants us to hear. And so uh, I'm going to expound just a bit on Psalm 1 and, uh, and incorporate a little bit of Psalm 2 because those two, they go together. They really establish and set the, the foundation and the tone for all of the Psalms. And so uh, I'll, I'll briefly mention a little bit from Psalm 2 as well. Uh, so let me throw this word out for you and, and, and begin to get in your mind what you think that it might mean. Um, you probably know, and you, maybe you know better than I, what it means. But this word ethic or ethics, you've heard this word before. You've got an idea of what it means. And so maybe in your mind, you're thinking ethics, is, it's morality, it's, it's right and wrong. It's the character of a person, their ethic. Um, you've heard the phrase, uh, uh, good worth ethic, or, or maybe, you know, if you're uh, of a certain age, you might have heard the phrase, Protestant worth ethic. And so we have an idea of what this word ethic might mean. Um, and it does mean those things. It, it does have to do with morality and right and wrong and the character of a person. But it, it really, it goes a little bit deeper. It goes deeper and broader as well. And it's why, what's the foundation for why something is right or wrong? And then it goes a little wider. It's, what are the consequences of doing the right thing or the wrong thing? And so we can see that Ethic is a, it's a, it's a way to, for us to understand how we are to live our lives. It's, and so maybe you've heard this phrase, the good life. And so some smart people, philosophers, they like, to, they like to study ethics in the sense of what does it mean to have the good life? Of course, anyone studying the good life apart from the Word of God is only fooling themselves and they're living a life without hope. And so... Uh, in order for us to kind of get a, a, an idea of what we might mean by this word ethic, we've already mentioned a good work ethic. The Bible has a lot to say about work. Um, in a little bit of my research, I found out that by some estimates, there are over 800 passages that mention and talk about work. I was surprised by that. I didn't realize that there were that many. But... Um, you, we, we know that going all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis, we see God at work. God worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh. And so on and on and on, there are many passages that talk about work. Um, Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever your task, do it as unto the Lord and not your master's. Working and doing well is the right thing because God has revealed it to us in His Word, but also in nature. Think about animals. If an animal doesn't work, it doesn't eat, it doesn't live. So even in God's general revelation, He has given to us this idea, this understanding that work is a good thing. It's a necessary thing in order to have the good life, the blessed life. I think, though, too, we could say that even within us, most people, they have something inside of them that want, wants to work, that propels them to get up each morning, 
to go to a job they may or may not like, to work, to provide. We need food, we need water, we need shelter. These are some of the basic needs that we have. And, and it's by no accident that we have this instilled inside of us, being made in the image of God. God set the standard for work that we want to work. God provided, we provide. God gave shelter, we give shelter. So it's within us. And so we, we see in both general revelation and in God's special revelation, His Word to us, that work is a good and necessary thing. On the flip side, though, there are some that don't want to work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 1 Timothy 5.8, it's pretty straightforward as well. It says that anyone who doesn't provide for his family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And let me just caveat all of this. By, I understand that there are some people that cannot work for one reason or another, so this is not addressing you. This is the normative thing is work is a good thing because it helps us to have that life that we should have, that blessed life. 1 Timothy, as I said, 5.8, it's really talking about this. He's addressing these believers that don't want to work. And so they understand that not working, not providing, not fulfilling what God has commanded them to do, it's sinful. It doesn't lead to the blessed life. It leads to the cursed life. It leads to a difficult life. And, and we're not just talking about a sort of temporal hardship, but it goes much further than that. It goes to a, an eternal cursed life. So there are those in the world, even in our country, and maybe you uh, you are aware of what some of the things that are going on in the, in the world today, in the news today, in our government today, in their policies, but there are some that are told that you don't have to work. The government will provide for you. The government will give you what you need. So don't worry about work. If you looked at the unemployment numbers, you see that unemployment continues to rise. And again, I'm not talking about those that cannot work for health or for other, because they have to tend to the needs of someone else. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the normative thing. Work is a good and necessary thing. And so when our government or someone else tries to say that you don't need to work, your wants, your needs, they will be taken care of. This goes against the creation order. It goes against what God has revealed to us in his word. And so you're probably saying, what does this have to do with Psalm 1? Well, I think that it's just, work is just one aspect of life. There are many, many other aspects of life. Parenting, educating, teaching, homemaking, playing with your kids. There's a right way and a wrong way to do all of these things. And so when, when this, this sermon is titled The Blessed Life, we have to ask ourselves, what is the blessed life? How do we know what the blessed life is? What is the foundation for the blessed life? What are the rewards of having a blessed life? What are the consequences of having a cursed life? And so that's how it's tied into Psalm 1. We see that the blessed man, he delights in the law of the Lord. 
And so that's what we want to do. And, and I'm just going to tell you up front that my first point is on verses 1 and 2, and that's probably like 75% of the time. Because we, we want to really lay the foundation for what it means to live a blessed life and to have a blessed life, eternally speaking. So, as I've already said, Psalm 2 kind of goes along with this as it sets the tone for all of the Psalms. But then we could also say, many commentators have said that the Psalms, within the Psalms, we see uh, kind of a, a continuation of the wisdom books it, it, in, in regards to how to live a life, how to, to gain wisdom and to put away folly. And so that's what Psalm 1 is talking about. But you take Psalm 2 with that, and that's the how you can have a blessed life. And so that's, that's where I'm going to get in a moment. But before I do that, I would like for us to read Psalm 1 and 2 together. Uh, they're very short. And so if you would, if you would please stand. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, the Black Pew Bibles there are there for you. You can use one of those. And I think it is on page 418, Psalm 1, the very beginning of the book of Psalms. If you do not have a Bible, if you know someone that does not have a Bible, as we say each week, there are some blue ones in the, in the back there in the foyer. Please take one. Uh, feel free to take one for yourself to give to someone that may need it. But those are our gift to you. And so let me read God's word in Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. God. Please be seated. Excuse me, I need to get a little drink of water. So I've got three points, three easy, easy points. First one, two men. Two men. We're going to talk about these two men in verses one and two. 
Point two, two paths, verses three and four. And then finally, third point, two destinations in verses five and six. So two men, two paths, and two destinations. So clearly we can see these two men are called the blessed and the wicked. But why? That's the question we need to ask. Why is one blessed and one wicked? And what we're really kind of talking about here is, is, this identity, is this idea of identity and belonging and how that affects the way that we live. The book of Psalms, much like the Proverbs, repeatedly says the blessed man over and over and over again. And he sets this blessed man against the wicked. This is, a, this is a way that the Proverbs and the, now Psalm 1 communicates to us two ways of living, the blessed life or the cursed life. So first, let's look at this blessed man. As we said, the Psalms repeatedly bring up this blessed man. And in fact, as we read just a moment ago in Psalm 2, verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Another way to translate this word blessed is trust. So blessed are all who trust in him. Who is this him? It is Jesus. It is God's own son. It is the Christ. The Apostle Paul quoted this psalm in Acts 13 when he was preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. In verses 32 and 33 of Acts 13, he says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Jesus, by way of Paul, is communicating that he was talked about way back in Psalm chapter 2. So not only is this blessed man's identity in Christ... But as Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so it's clear that the blessed are those who belong to the one true God and live to faithfully obey him. It's important to point out that the Psalms never say the blessed man is sinless. In fact, it says just the opposite. What we see over and over in the Psalms is that when the blessed sin, they confess and repent of their sin turning to God for blessings and protection, provision, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Just think of King David when he committed adultery, when he committed murder. He said, to you, God, I have sinned. He repented, he confessed, he cried out, and God forgave. This is a theme all throughout the Psalms that God, his people, they are not sinless, though they are blessed, and they repent and confess and turn back to him. And he is good and gracious and merciful to forgive. So friends, it's clear that the blessed are those that have trusted in Jesus for salvation. Understanding that good works will never save them, never going to make them righteous before a holy God. All believers, past and present, find their identity rooted in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because all true believers are in Christ, they belong to Him, and they find refuge in Him, and they are blessed. 
So we're, we're, we've addressed this idea of identity and belonging. Those that are blessed, their identity is in Christ because they have trusted in him and they belong to him. They are his people. So who is this other man, the wicked man? He's called not just wicked, but a sinner and a scoffer. Proverbs 21.10 says that the soul of the wicked desires evil. The neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Proverbs 21 verse 24 says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. This man wants nothing to do with God and his word. He has turned away from God and his word. He seeks to live according to his own desires and thoughts. And in seeking freedom from the constraints of God and his word, he doesn't realize that what he's actually doing is becoming even more enslaved to his own sinful heart. He's not free by turning away from God's law, God's word, and God. He becomes even more enslaved without even realizing it. So the implication of this passage and many others in the Bible is that in his sin, this man, he wants to not only go down a path of wickedness, but he wants to bring along as many people as he can with him. Having seen how the man became blessed, how the other man became wicked, we should ask, why? And the answer is, delight. Delight. But before we get to the positive, let's look at the negative, because that's how this psalm starts. He's the negative. So, the blessed man does not walk with the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So that's what he does not do. That's what he does not find delight in. The blessed man is a man who recognizes his need to not live as the world, world lives, to not be too closely aligned with any that reject God, and to not give ultimate authority to worldly wisdom. That's what he does not do. So that is answering the question in the negative. Well, what about the positive? What does the man do? What does the blessed man do? He delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. This word delight communicates that the person loves the law of God. He has a deep, intimate affection and desire for it. His heart and soul and mind experiences a craving for the law of God. And that craving is only satisfied as he comes to know and love God more and more and more as he meditates day and night. That should maybe this word craving recall in your mind a verse that man does not live on bread alone. Maybe you're hungry and your stomach's kind of growling. This idea of craving. Man does not live by bread alone, but on the very word of God. And it is his delight. This man, is, though, he's not just reading the law, rolling up the scroll, putting it away, going about his business for the rest of the day. No. This word meditate slow, means slowly chewing on every word, thinking through what it means 
the way that the words are put together, the deeper meaning that the Lord has intended. This, this, in the Hebrew, this word meditate, in the, in the minds of the Israelites, they would have pictured in their minds somebody walking along actually saying these words out loud. That's what this means. So this wasn't just a quick little five-minute devotional in the morning and you're on, on to work and on to taking care of kids and, and that's that. No. This is much, much, much more. And it's because of the desire and the delight that you have in God's Word. Psalm 119. It's a familiar one. It's entitled, Your Word is a Lamp to My Feet. It has 176 verses. And I, I went through and counted, and I think I'm right, that in every verse, except for maybe eight, there's a reference to God's Word. Some of them include law of the Lord, testimonies, commands, statutes, righteous rules, precepts, promises. There are others, but you get the idea. The law of the Lord, the Word of God, is in every one of these verses explicitly, except for eight, and implicitly in the others. It's all throughout this 176 verse psalm. The emphasis is there. We need to understand that God's word is important. In this Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. As one commentary puts it, verse 97 is perhaps the theological heart of the Psalms, as it expresses the psalmist's love for God's law. Yet, the psalmist also recognizes that he has strayed from time to time from the standard set forth in the law. While the emphasis of the psalm is on love for and obedience to the law of God, this is balanced to some degree by an awareness of the need for forgiveness. The law is a faithful expression of God's character. God sent his son to keep the law for us. This law no longer condemns us, setting us free to accept it as our guide for pleasing the one who died in our place. Jesus came to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill. He has fulfilled it perfectly so that all that trust in him find refuge in him. We aren't condemned by the law. We are set free by him and we faithfully obey it to please him, to worship him, to glorify him. Let me just say a bit more about this word delight. We notice here in these two verses that they move from actions of the body, walk, stand, sit, to another category entirely new, one of the heart, delighting. So there is a difference between doing something by sheer strength of body or will and doing something because you delight in it in your heart. There's a relationship between the heart the mind, and the body. We can do lots of good things that are not good things. We can serve people, but it's not done in faith. It's not done to please our good God. And so it's not an act of righteousness. There's a, there can be a disconnect between the head and the heart, between the body and the heart. We can go through the motions. We can read the Bible. We can serve others, 
But if we are not delighting in God and his word, it's all for naught. Psalm 19:14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist in Psalm 1 and 19 is drawing out this activity of speaking the law of the Lord. It's an, the mouth is an overflow of the heart. What is in our heart comes out, not in just the way that we speak, though that's what he's talking about here with this meditating, but in the way that we use our members, our arms, our minds, our legs, our bodies. And so I've been talking a lot about the law of the Lord. And I know that in both the church and in the world, when someone hears this word law, they start thinking negatively. There's a good reason for that. Christians in the past have been some of the worst legalists, the worst hypocrites. And so many may feel justified in having such a negative outlook on the law. But let me just take a few moments. And like I told you, this is my longest point, point number one. The rest will be quicker, much quicker. So if I can, and I'll try to do this quickly. This, uh, this word legalist or legalism, it is a negative word. It is a bad word. Because legalists, they've sort of jettisoned grace or they have an imbalanced view of the gospel. And so... If you know somebody who won't come to church or has a bad view of the church or, or because of legalism, you can understand. And so let me, let me just take a, take a couple of seconds here and talk a little bit about this idea of legalism. The psalmist, though, has in mind not just rules, not just commands, but all of God's revelation, all of God's word. And so for the psalmist they would have been talking about the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. So all of what God is saying. So it's not just his commands, but it's his instruction in the general sense. It's his Psalms. It's his books of wisdom. It's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which are a lot of history. A lot of the, you think about Leviticus, it's a lot of the, the laws there, but it's that sacrificial system. So it's all of God's instruction. It's not just commands. And so that's what, another thing that we have to keep in mind. In the time of Jesus, he had even more of revealed revelation. It was all of what we call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings. And for us now, we have 66 books of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you probably have heard it many times. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Men do abuse the word of God, no doubt. But this, that same word that's being abused, it's the same word that gives freedom and life. We can see the importance of the Word of God and His revelation to us. We see the Word of God. It is necessary. It's a necessary foundation for how we are to live the blessed life, to rightly understand reality, and most importantly, to be able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe to say it another way, apart from the very Word of God, man remains a wicked sinner who scoffs at God and His Word. 
He continues on down that path of destruction that ultimately leads to eternal death. Yet God's word brings forth eternal life and blessing if it's faithfully obeyed. We could say it's a thing to be delighted in. Which gets back to my earlier point about how some hear this word law and they have this negative reaction. One uh, theologian, he, uh, I found this and he, he's broken this, this uh, legalism down into three helpful categories. I think they're very helpful for us. And, and so uh, the first one here, I'm sure that you've heard of, it's, he calls it salvation legalism. Think um, Galatians, where the... Paul was writing to the Galatians because those Jewish Christians had been trying to add to the gospel. Circumcision, the law, the Old Testament law, that in order to be saved, not only did you have to believe what Christ did, but you also had to do all of these other things. Circumcision. You had to follow all the, the Old Testament laws. And so that's salvation legalism. When you add to the gospel, or you replace it with a gospel that is really no gospel at all. That one's easy. You can recognize that one. We understand that we can't save ourselves through anything that we do. It's all an act of God, a miracle of God, a work of grace and mercy on our behalf to give us a new heart, to give us that desire for Him and His Word. But this second type is called rules legalism. And this is one that um, maybe you've experienced. I think maybe in, in the minds of a lot of people, this is the one that they've experienced. And this is when believers are told that they must follow man-made rules rather than or alongside God's rules. Not in terms of salvation, but to be a good Christian, to be a Christian in, in right standing with God. So not only do you have to believe in the gospel, but you have to follow these man-made rules such as specific type of dress or attendance to church a certain number of times a week. Or you, you've heard the list. You know what I'm talking about. It's man-made rules that make you a right kind of Christian. Maybe you can think of Romans 14, where Paul's writing, and he's, he's talking about don't, don't try to make Bind, make what you say binding on another believer. Make what you believe, make some man-made rule binding on the conscience of another believer. Or the Pharisees, when they added to God's law, they were making these man-made rules to try to, to control the Jews. J. Gresham Machen, a theologian back in the 20th century, had this to say, Dependence upon a word of man would be slavish, meaning slave. But dependence upon God's word is life. The Bible to the Christian is not a burdensome law, but the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. So you think about the Magna Carta. You've, maybe it's been a while since you've been in history class. It has been for me. So you think about what the Magna Carta did. It, was, it opened up the world to, making the, to a path to liberty to where you were not beholden to a monarchy, basically. So you had this sort of freedom that you did not have before. And that's what he's saying, the, that the God's word is this path to liberty, to this path to freedom, away from enslavement to sin and man-made rules. So that's the second type, rules-based legalism. 
This third type, it might be a little bit more difficult, though I think that if you've experienced it, you kind of feel it when, you, when you've experienced it. It's called tone legalism, T-O-N-E, legalism, tone. It is a legalism of spirit rather than a legalism of doctrine. Pastors and churches where you find this type of legalism may be solid doctrinally, but their ministries are marked by a heavy-handed, crushing, and even oppressive focus on law-keeping. They lead through fault-finding. There's a real imbalanced focus on the law with a pastor in the church, lacking a balanced and joyful focus on the gospel. The law is there, but it's a relationship to the gospel that's not properly understood. And so this is one of more of a, like a feeling. You, you know it when you experience it. You see, you feel this, this, uh, this weight of condemnation, like you can't do enough. That's an imbalanced understanding of the gospel, an imbalanced living out of the gospel. And so that one may be a little bit harder to understand. And, and, and so uh, I think it's helpful to kind of break down these categories of legalism. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because in this Psalm 1, the psalmist is talking about the delight that the blessed man takes in the law of God, the, the liberty that is experienced in living this blessed life. And so a lot of times we can look at the law, the instruction of God, the revelation of God in his word, as something that takes away freedom from, from us, that binds us in a way that, that keeps good things from us. But that's not what God's word does. It is life-giving. It is freedom-giving. And so we need to be reminded of that. And so if you ever have a conversation with somebody that doesn't want to come to church because of a bunch of hypocrites or legalists, you can take them to Psalm 1 and talk about the life and the freedom that the word of God gives. This passage in Psalm 1 helps us to see that the blessed delight in the law is what the law gives. Their obedience to the law does not give them salvation, as we've said, but it's an act of obedience in faith, understanding that salvation has been secured by the Son of God. It is life-giving, freedom-securing word of God that the wicked man, this other man, he wants nothing to do with it. The thoughts of this man's heart are only evil continually. And so the identities of these men are fundamentally and radically different. And of course, this leads to them going down two very different paths. Before we leave this point, I want to say one more thing about it, about this, the law of God. All men everywhere, and we in particular as followers of Christ especially, we must have our very foundation on this law. It must be the foundation of how we understand reality, how we know truth, how we discern right from wrong. For many, though, it's their own reason. It's their own minds that is their foundation for understanding reality, for understanding truth, for understanding right and wrong. So we have these two men, the blessed man, who at his foundation is the word of God, and we have the wicked man, and his foundation is his own sinful reason. I bring this up because Psalm 1 makes it very clear that the blessed man is blessed because he delights in the word of God, 
As noted above, and as we've seen through the rest of the Psalms, this means that the blessed man understands reality and truth and goodness and beauty because he meditates on God's word day and night. It's become his framework for understanding his life and all of reality. It's, as we say often, it's his worldview. The second reason, though, that I bring this up is that we are currently in a fight for reality, for truth, for goodness, and for beauty. I don't mean that these things change. Reality is reality because God has created it. He doesn't change, so it does not change. Truth is true because it flows from the character of God. He does not change, and so it will not change. What is right is right because it flows from God's character. He does not change, so it will never change. So I don't mean that these things change. But what I do mean is that people's understanding of these things change and their lives are affected by the way that they understand these things. So we, as believers, we as people of the Word, that means the revealed, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God, we must know it. We must meditate on it. It must be the delight of our hearts. As one theologian put it, the days are coming rapidly to an end when what is morally acceptable to think, excuse me, let me read that again. The days are coming rapidly to an end when it was morally acceptable to think that language, among its many functions, had a positive relation to reality. To say it another way, words used to have a fixed meaning that used to mean something, and everybody understood what they meant. When you said truth, everybody had a general understanding of what truth was. And so what he is saying is that's no longer the case. What's true for you may not be true for someone else. And so to go back to what I was saying earlier, truth is truth. It never changes. But people's perception and understanding of truth is changing, and it's changing rapidly. Another 20th century writer said this, and I think this might be a little more clear for us. Once the word, as it is employed by the communications media, has, as a matter of principle, been rendered neutral to the norm of truth, it is, by its very nature, a ready-made tool just waiting to be picked up by the powers that be and employed for violent or despotic ends. So what he's saying is that words are a tool of the wicked. Words, they do have meaning in reality. They're connected to reality. Some people, because of the evil, the wickedness, the scoffing, take these words and they use them as weapons to lead other people down the same path that they're going because of the wickedness in their heart. And so we as Christians, we as people of the Word, we have to meditate on it day and night. We have to, it has to so penetrate our hearts and our minds that we live out this truth. It comes out of our mouths. We understand reality because of it. And so when we engage with the world who wants to change the meaning of a word such as male and female, we can push back 
we can say no. We cannot accept your changing the definition of something that is biologically objective because it is true because God made it that way from the very beginning. God made them male and female. So I didn't want to get on a soapbox there and go off on a tangent, but I think that you get the meaning of what I'm trying to communicate, that God's word must be the foundation for our understanding of reality, our understanding of what is true and good and beautiful. We are the blessed people of God, so let's live like it. Let's talk like it. Let's think like it. All right. Now, second point. The blessed man and the wicked man, radically different people, going in two different directions. So the two paths of these men. Let me read um, verses 3 and 4 to jog our memory about these two paths. Verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So here we see these two men are set apart, going in different directions. And we see this given to us in very descriptive language, very descriptive imagery. This helps us to see how these lives that are lived in two very divergent ways are defined, are characterized. Just at a glance, we see one man's path seems lush, green, alive, fruitful, while the others seem dry, withered, fleeting, and dead. Let me just say quickly that right now it may seem that the wicked are blessed. You look around the world, many people that are living apart from God and His Word have been blessed with material blessings, with power, with stature, with renown, with gifts and talents that we maybe wish that we had. But these are not true blessings. These are temporal. These are fleeting. They will fade away like the chaff that's blown in the wind. If we take a closer look, first at this blessed man who is like that tree planted by streams of water. This imagery of a tree planted by streams of water can be found in many places in Scripture. Ezekiel 17.8, Ezekiel 19.10, Ezekiel 47.12, Revelation 22.2, just to name a few. So maybe uh, I'll encourage you to go back through and, and search the scriptures for this idea of trees, of streams of water, and to sort of see how through God's word he is communicating to us something deeper than just a tree, just water. I wanted to read Jeremiah 17, 5 and 8, um, and you know what, I'm going to do it. So, Jeremiah 17, 5 and 8. I want to read it because it goes right along with Psalm 1, 3 and 4. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, 
for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So you can see the similarities between these two passages. You can see the similarities between those that are blessed and those that are cursed, those that are wicked. When we take these two passages together, we get a, the communication of, of what is life-giving, what does it look like, and what is the cursed life, and what it looks like. So this blessed man, he delights in it. He drinks deeply from it. He drinks deeply from the stream, from God's Word. His leaf is green. It doesn't wither. He has abundant, productive life. It produces much fruit in season. In fact, it says in Jeremiah that he, ceases to bear, he does not cease to bear fruit. This man prospers in all that he does. This man is blessed. And as we've said before, this man's obedience to the law, to the instruction of the Lord, to the Word of God, isn't what brings about salvation. Rather, it's his salvation that allows for obedience to the law, to understanding of the law, and delighting in it. So how are we to live as blessed men, women, and children? What should the expectation of the Christian life be now? And how does that affect the outlook on our destination? So we, if you want to, actually, you can turn in your bulletins because we uh, read the Beatitudes earlier. And you can read along with me as I read from Matthew 5. Those Beatitudes, picking up in verse 2. Thinking about how it is that we are to live now as believers in Christ. How we are to delight in the law of the Lord and obey it. In verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, delight, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4, help us to see how it is that we can live in a Matthew 5 world. For the Christian, this is our reality as we live between the two comings of Jesus. This should be our heart posture. It should be our expectations in this life. But it also should remind us of our hope in the future. And it's not just some distant future. The hope that we have is because we are in Christ. We belong to Him. We will be with Him forever. So if you go back through, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the weak, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are you when others revile you. This is our lot in life as believers in Christ. This should be our expectation. So when Psalm 1 
talks about the blessed man living the blessed life, we need to understand it in this Matthew 5 context. This is the reality in which we find ourselves. Just like the blessed man, this righteous man in Psalm 1 was not sinless and perfect, we are not sinless and perfect. We've all sinned and will sin. But Jesus lived this out perfectly for us because that we are driven now to both grace and mercy because of our understanding of how Christ lived this out for us. He was poor. He was mocked. He was reviled. He was sped upon. He was crucified. He was blessed. And because of him, we can be blessed. Going back to our Psalm 1 passage, there's much more that we could explore in all of those different metaphors. We just don't have time. But here is a reference from Jesus on water that maybe might help to bring some of this together. And we find it in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, being the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we see here the deeper meaning of this word water. Sure, there's physical and temporal thirst that these little molecules of hydrogen and oxygen can fill. They can quench. It's life-sustaining physically. But there's a spiritual and eternal thirst that only the, wor the water of God can fill, can quench that thirst. So friends, I would ask you, if you're here today, you have not tasted this water, to consider drinking from the water of life that is Christ Jesus. Now this wicked man, on the other hand, he scoffs at the word of God. He trusts only in himself, other men, worldly wisdom, the desires of his heart are away from God and towards himself. These passages from Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17, they refer to this man as chaff, a shrub in the desert, a parched wilderness. This man lives a self-focused life that is unproductive, it's dry, and it's void of good fruit. This man relies upon his own strength, his own life, and we see that he goes against God at every turn, much like the farmer that goes against the creation order in sowing and planting, but yields no fruit come harvest time. In fact, the better way to describe the wicked man's existence is that he is dying to life one day at a time. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12 says, But the chaff, he, meaning Jesus, will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the destination for those that are wicked. Each day this man awakens in his dry desert wilderness. He goes about his life trusting in his own sinful inclinations, his own sinful heart, shaking his fist at God and his word. This man scoffs at the goodness of God as he turns away from the true life-giving stream of water that is God's word. This man is rootless. He is not grounded in anything other than his own wicked heart and fallible reason. He is not planted 
His root system is not deep beside that stream of water. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3 says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Wise here doesn't mean biblical wisdom, but rather worldly wisdom. So one day after another passes in darkness for this man until finally he withers and dies. It is then that his real reality begins. And then he will not be able to stand before the holy God of all creation. So two men, two paths, and now two destinations. Picking up in verse 5 of Psalm 1. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows that the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we can sum this up pretty quickly. There are two peoples heading down two very different paths, going to two very, very different destinations. We see in verse 5 that these two people are again set against one another, the wicked and the righteous. They will one day come to their destinations. In verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. These sinners will not be in the congregation of the righteous. Psalm 5, 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The wicked, life, the wicked live a life that leads to eternal punishment and death. The congregation of the righteous, though, says in verse 6, that the Lord knows their path. He knows their way. He knows their destination. These are those blessed from verse 1. These are those that found refuge and trust in the Son of God from Psalm 2, 12. If the Lord places you on this path, you will get to glory. You will be blessed. Revelation 21 goes on to say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, the blessed man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So friends, we all face the end of this life at some point. Either Christ will return or we will die. All of us. Every human being will face judgment by the one and true perfect judge. The Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. His children adopted through the blood of his son will experience eternity dwelling with him, worshiping him, loving him, and knowing him more and more deeply each day. They will bask in his warmth, in his love. While those wicked those that scoffed at him and his word, those that sought to be gods unto themselves, that in their pride shook their fist at God and turned away from him, they will perish in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But let me just end with this. This is the good news. It doesn't have to end that way for anyone. This wicked man, he doesn't have to stay a wicked man. Because that son of God from Psalm 2, verse 12, that son of God that Paul wrote about in Acts chapter 13, 
He was, Paul was actually giving a sermon. He was, he was presenting the gospel to them. This is the good news that is held out for you. You too can turn away from your sin. You too can no longer shake your fist at God. You don't have to scoff at His word. Trust in Him. Take refuge in Him. You can have the blessed life. Not just now, but eternally. There are only two paths, two destinations. In, in our uh, middle school class this morning, we were talking about um, this idea of the promised kingdom. And we were talking about how Jesus is the true and better Adam. Adam was created by God, yet he fell. He relied upon his own faulty, finite reason and was led astray by Satan. So all that are now sinners, because we're all descendants of Adam, we're all either in Adam because of our sinful nature, or we are in Christ because we have been redeemed. We have trusted in Him. We have sought refuge in Him. We have turned away from our sin. We belong to Him. So if there's anyone here today that has not trusted in and sought refuge in Christ, myself, Pastor David, will be down at front. We would love to talk with you and answer any questions that you may have about what it means to be blessed, what it means to live the blessed life, what it means to live eternally in a blessed state with our Creator and our Redeemer. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that you have so clearly shown us from it that we are to delight in it, to meditate upon it, so that we may know who you are, we may understand who we are and our need for you, we may see with eyes that have been opened by you the message of salvation that is through your son Jesus how you have been working in your history to bring about reconciliation between wicked men and yourself, and how no one no longer has to remain wicked, but that rather they can trust in you, they can repent of that sin, and they can turn and seek refuge as adopted children through the work of your son Jesus on the cross. So now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds, that you would do what only you can do and perform a miracle by giving us, taking out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh for those that may need it. And for those that are believers already, we pray, Lord, that these things would become more important to us, that we would become more intentional, that our desire would grow day by day as we meditate upon your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.